like a community table. I think sometimes coffee shops and things like that put these tables in there like hoping that they're used as a community table where like people who don't know each other sit in the same spot, which for us as Americans is like really rare. Like that's not typically how we operate, but it actually works. It's a true community table. And so if I'm there for, let's say, three or four hours, I would love to see like like a a, a time lapse of all the different types of people that have come and gone from this one particular spot over the course of a morning, all gathered around the same table. All right, thinking about gathering around tables. Um, I think about the first table that Aaron and I had when we got married. It was a six-person table uh, from Ikea that her brother gave us. Um, It was with us in Texas. It moved with us to Missouri, then to Kentucky, and now to Greenville. We eventually got rid of it because we inherited uh, an even larger table. Um, But as we were getting rid of our old table, I could not help but think about all the life that happened around that table. Um, All the family life. When my oldest daughter, who is now 12, was an infant, we were first-time parents, we would literally set her as an infant on top of the table for her naps. I don't think that's safe. I don't think you're supposed to do that. We were first-time parents. This was 12 years ago. Things are different now. But she literally took naps on the table. All the meals we had around that table with friends, the laughter, the stories that were told, the tears that were shed on that table, um, the the family moments that happened there, uh, the counseling sessions that that we were either receiving or giving around that one table, um, the pencil markings from our kids as they got older around this table, like the encrusted food that you could never really get out of the cracks of the table that was still there when we sold it to actually to someone that goes to this church. We're sorry. Um, but continue with those great memories. Um, The tables that we gather around are really special. It's a really intimate place. Um, It's it's even like a sacred space, Um, especially when you pause and think about all the life that has happened around your table. And so the passage we're looking at this afternoon is a passage about who is welcomed to the table with Jesus. And as we look at that, there's going to be some implications for us. So let me read our passage for us again. Matthew chapter 9, 9 to 13, if you're following along in the bulletin or in your Bible. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when Jesus saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you have promised that this word will do something to us. It's living and active. This is not like other books we read. There's something special about your word. And so, Father, we ask you that by your Holy Spirit, you would do something to us this afternoon. Change us. Meet us. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts Be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so here's how I want to approach this text this afternoon. Two questions for the text, and then two questions for us. Two questions for the text, two questions for us. 
Okay, two questions for the text. The first one I want to ask is this. Who is at the table? Who is at the table? Um, This passage actually starts before we get to the table with Jesus. It starts with this interaction between Jesus and a tax collector named Matthew. Let's talk about the interaction that they have together. Look at this interaction in verse 9. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. It's almost as though you could blink and and miss this. Do you see this, this literally radical change of course in just one verse? Jesus literally walks by a tax booth, sees Matthew, says, follow me. Matthew's like, okay. And he gets up and he follows him. All right, now it's likely there's a little bit more buildup than what Matthew records in his gospel. It's likely that Matthew had seen Jesus from afar, had heard the hype about him, had heard some of his teaching, maybe seen some miracles. And so this wasn't like his first experience of him, but it was sort of like go time. Am I going to follow him or not? Um, But to feel the weight of this interaction of Jesus calling this tax collector Matthew... We need to know more about tax collectors. One of my seminary professors named Dan Doriani wrote this amazing commentary on Matthew's gospel. And he gives more details about what a tax collector would have been like in this time. So tax collectors served the Roman Empire. So they were already considered the bad guys. Um, Tax collectors got rich by taking the wealth of their own people. Not a great way to make a living. Um, They chose this way of life because it meant wealth and prosperity for them even though they knew that they would lose respectability and they would lose friendships. Tax collectors did not have a lot of friends. I guess probably other than like other tax collectors. That's who they would have hung out with, I guess. Um, They willingly chose this way of life knowing that it would would clash with God's law. So that was like not a secret, that that being a tax collector would clash with God's law. They were not welcomed in synagogues because of that. So they were unacceptable politically, religiously, and socially. That's a tax collector, and that's Matthew. Needless to say, he would not have been a popular choice to be a disciple of Jesus. Maybe even the furthest thing from that. Yet, Jesus calls him. And Matthew leaves it all to follow Jesus. And he would actually become one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Oh yeah, he actually wrote the gospel that we just read from. Which is pretty incredible to think about. Um, And this will tell us something about what it looks like to become a follower of Jesus. Jesus does not target those with a religious resume. He targets people like Matthew, someone whom we would have considered just an objectively bad person. If we knew Matthew, we'd say, yeah, 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 you don't want anything to do with him. Not the kind of guy you're looking for. He's, in the words of my kids, he's a baddie. Why? Why does Jesus do that? Because Jesus loves sinners and he calls Jesus to follow him and there's this dramatic response by Matthew where he literally gets up and leaves this life of sin behind to follow Jesus you know that after this he's no longer a tax collector Um, he knew that there was something wrong about his old way of life his old job he knew that 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 would not connect with following Jesus that something was going to have to change and this is where we see what multiple people have said about Jesus that he meets us where we are but he does not leave us where we are He loves us in our sin and he meets us there, but he does not leave us there. He calls us into a new life of following him. All right, so he's got Matthew on board. He's following Jesus now. So this money-hungry, tax-collecting, wealthy, uh, fringe person has encountered Jesus. What does he do? I love this. He throws a party. 
And he invites his money-hungry, tax-collecting sinner friends to have a meal with Jesus, the one who just changed his life. Let's talk about, we talked about the interaction. Let's talk about the dinner party. Look at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners uh, came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Okay, this phrase reclining at table, that if you've read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the beginning of the New Testament stories about Jesus' life, that's a common phrase. It feels clunky to us. We don't talk about like going home later and reclining at table. That was a specific phase where, there, where tables were lower to the ground. They were likely sitting on the floor on cushions, something like that, feet away from the table, kind of leaning in on the table like this. And so it was likely that this dinner scene would have been, could have been seen by those walking by on the outside, that it was sort of open to the outside where people could look in and see what was going on, see who was eating with who. All right, who is around the table with Jesus at this dinner party? It tells us here, many tax collectors, lots of baddies, sinners, Jesus, and some of his disciples. This is beautiful, and this is really hard to imagine. It's almost like when a couple gets engaged and their families meet for the first time. And sometimes that goes well. Other times they have like vastly different political views. And you're just like bracing for the fireworks at this meal that you like have to have. Because there's just people from very different backgrounds getting together around the same meal together. But that's what is happening here. It's this beautiful mashup of the Son of God, some of his closest friends, tax collectors and sinners. These super non-religious people. Um, there's a new show on Netflix uh, called Old Enough um, that's been, been getting some buzz lately. I've not watched it, don't necessarily plan to, but I read an article about it, um, and it was fascinating. It's a Japanese reality show, which I guess has aired in Japan for like three decades now, but is just now arriving in the U.S. We're late to the party on that one. Um, but on this show, toddlers, children ages two to four, are given errands to run for their parents by themselves. So toddlers are told to go run an errand by themselves. And a film crew follows the toddler without the toddler knowing it. And then there's a narrator who sort of like narrates the whole thing. In this case, it's in Japanese, which I don't know Japanese. But it looks pretty amazing from the preview that I watched. But you have this image, toddlers running errands by themselves. And if you're here and that's your parenting style, that's awesome. No judgment. More power to you. I actually started thinking about this. We have a four-year-old. And so um, I was reading this article. I thought, I wonder if she'd be up for this. So I said, E.K., would you be willing to go to Publix by yourself and get some milk for us? And thinking that she would have no concept for what I was asking her. But then, like, she actually asked some legitimate follow-up questions and concerns. She said, but, Dad, I I can't drive. I was like, okay, yeah, you're right. Okay, so what if I drop you off at Publix and I'll give you money to go inside and, and get the milk? And she thought about it some more. She's like, well, the milk would probably be too heavy for me. It's like, okay, that's actually a very legitimate um, question. So maybe we could get like a smaller, like a half gallon. I bet you could hold a half gallon. Um, But it kind of threw me off. Like she was tracking. I think she's actually capable of going to Publix and getting milk. The author of this article summarizes a scene from this show where she says, in the first episode, a toddler takes a 20-minute walk to a grocery store and picks up three items for his mom, flowers, curry, and fish cakes. By the way, I don't think I could pick out curry and fish cakes um, if I was asked to go to the store and get it. The little boy couldn't be more than two and a half years old. Is that a diaper I see under his shorts? Yet he manages to navigate traffic, find two of the items in the grocery, pay for them, and walk out of the store. As if that's not enough, on his way home, he remembers that he forgot the third item. So he walks back to the store, 
finds the third item and heads home, waving a yellow flag to help signal motorists to slow down as he crosses a busy street. I just read this article and I was imagining myself being at the grocery store and looking over and seeing a two-year-old with like a basket of groceries and a wad of cash just looking up like, hey, what's up? What's up? Okay, not at all what you would expect to see at the grocery store. This meal with Jesus, the Son of God, with tax collectors and sinners, not at all who you would expect to see around the table with Jesus. Okay, so we said who's at the table. Let's ask this other question of the text. Who's not at the table? Who's not at the table? Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, The Pharisees are not at the table with Jesus. Rather, they are the ones who are looking in, criticizing who Jesus is eating with. Pharisees were the super religious people. If, if tax collectors and sinners were super unreligious, Pharisees were super religious. Very strict on following the law. They knew it in and out. They added extra laws to the law just so they wouldn't uh, get close to breaking the law. And they wanted everyone else to follow their super strict laws. So naturally, if they see something like this meal going down, they're going to be very critical. And, and, and so they criticize Jesus. Let's talk about their religious criticism here. What do they say? First off, They don't criticize Jesus directly. They go to his disciples, which is kind of weak. But what do they say? They say, why does your teacher eat with those kind of people? It's important to know that in this context, a meal was not just a meal. It wasn't like casually dropping by Pita House and getting the Middle East plate with chicken and extra pita and seeing a couple friends there and sitting down and having a meal. It It was a much bigger deal than this. Doriani, in that book I mentioned, talks about a meal in this context. He says, in that culture, dining together was no casual act. He says, the Pharisees might have understood if Jesus taught the sinners. But when Jesus shared a meal with sinners, it implied that he accepted them, befriended them, and loved them. All right, so in the eyes of the Pharisees, it would have been one thing if they saw him teaching these kind of people. Because, oh, like you're changing them. You're like helping them get their act together to become better people. But it was different when it was a meal, because a meal meant acceptance. And it made the Pharisees nervous that Jesus was approving of their way of life. All right, do you ever feel, if you're honest, like you have to justify hanging out with certain people? Uh, Maybe you have like a meeting with someone or a meal with someone, and for some reason, you're kind of ashamed to be with them. Especially if, it's, if you see someone while you're out whose opinion you really value. You're like, oh, I hope I don't get seen with this person or this group of people. And maybe you think of like, uh, well, like, yeah, I was only meeting with them because I had to. Or they really wanted to get together. Or it was for work. Or it was for this thing, this project, or whatever. Um, kids, maybe you feel that at school where like you have your normal group of friends you feel like you're in with. And maybe there's someone who's not in that group of friends. And so you feel like if you hang out with that person, you're, you're like borderline ashamed of it because it's not someone that runs with your current group, and so you feel like you have to justify it. Um, Something we see about Jesus in this text is that Jesus does not feel the need to justify who he's hanging out with. He loves tax collectors and sinners, and he's totally fine being seen at the table with them. But he gets this criticism from the religious people, so he responds. How does Jesus respond to this religious criticism. Let's talk about the Jesus response we see in 12 and 13. Look at 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So he says he came not for the healthy, but for the sick. Not for the good people, but for the bad people. Not for the righteous, but for sinners. And do you know this about Jesus? That he really came for bad people. He came for bad people because he loves bad people. And then to these religious people, he quotes their Hebrew scriptures to them. Which they would have known. It's Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says, go and learn what that means. You who know the scriptures so well, go and learn what that means. When he says um, not sacrifice, sacrifice in this context means observance of their religious laws and rituals. He says, that's not what I'm after. Mercy is what I'm after. You could translate that steadfast love is what I'm after. Jesus tells the super strict religious people, I want you to love sinners rather than imposing your religious laws on them. Would you get your priorities straight, he says to them. Doriani contrasts this here. He says, the Pharisees thought a righteous teacher should spend time with sinners after they change. But Jesus accepted the sinner before he transformed the sinner. So it always is with Jesus. He loves sinners as we are, but he never leaves us where we are. All right, this is who Jesus is. This is who he sits around the table with, tax collectors and sinners. In light of this, two questions for us. Two questions for us. All right, first question. Are you at the table with Jesus? As you read this account, are you sitting at that table? Who do you connect with more in this story? And if your first thought is Jesus, um, maybe don't start there. Um, That's awesome. But maybe don't start there. Uh, Do you connect with the tax collectors and sinners? Maybe you feel like um, you have just done too many bad things to be at the same table as Jesus. Um, It could have been even years or decades in the past. uh, But the guilt and shame, it, it seems to like stick to your body. And you cannot wash it off. And maybe you've tried to wash it off. Um, Maybe you've tried to wash off the guilt by being better. And whether you've said that to yourself or you're just like operating that way, um, you're you're trying to live a really good life to make up for the bad thing that just leaves the guilt and shame sticking to you. So you are working really hard to do good to make up for that. Um, Maybe... You've tried washing off the guilt by ignoring the guilt, by pretending like that, that, that guilt and shame, that dirt is not on you. And so you choose just not to think about it, to block it off at all costs. Maybe you get super busy so you don't have the margin to even think about it. And you know when things slow down, it kind of pops up again and you start to feel guilty so you get really busy again. Maybe you, don't, you certainly don't talk about it because if we say things, they seem more real. If we let others into that, it feels... Like we're on the hook, it feels more real. Maybe you just suppress it, but it's sort of like trying to hold a beach ball under the water in a pool. It's going to find a way back up, and so maybe it just kind of pops up, the guilt and the shame, the memories do for you. Maybe it's like showing itself in dreams that you have at night. You just can't get away from it. Or maybe you have given up on washing away the guilt and shame. You've just stopped trying um, because whatever that phase or era or thing that you did, whatever that was, you just can't seem to escape it. So you're like, you know what? Why try? I'm going all in with it. I'm just going to be the person who does that. And you're not, you're, you're not trying to get away from it. 
Um, If you feel dirty with guilt and shame today, know that Jesus really can make you clean. That's what his cross and resurrection were all about. Dying to offer the cleansing that his people needed. And that's the only way you can get it. Is through Jesus. So if you connect most with tax collectors and sinners in the story, know that you're invited to the table with Jesus. Just like they were. Maybe you connect more with the Pharisees. uh, With the religious people. So your, your struggle is not feeling too guilty or too shameful to be with Jesus. It's more that you feel pretty good about yourself. Um, you don't really feel your need of a savior. Um, maybe you're, you're, you're um, quicker to make judgments about other people's behavior and mistakes than you are to be critical and even aware of your own. And if this is where you find yourself, I would just say it's, it's really good to be aware of that. And it's important to know that that is the most dangerous ground when you're around Jesus. To, don't, to, to think that you don't really need him. Um, To follow Jesus is to realize that your resume is not good enough to stand on its own. And it means laying down that resume and taking the resume that he offers of his righteousness and holding up and saying, okay, I can get in because of this, not because of my own resume. His resume gets you to the table, not your own. So please, if you're connecting with the Pharisees, I would just invite you to lay that resume down today. And trust Jesus instead. And I promise it will be so freeing to you. So first question for us. Are you at the table of Jesus? Second question. Who is at your table? All right, finally, a few specific words about hospitality and opening our homes. You're like, yeah, finally, this is why I came today. (laughs) Uh, The more deeply, if you think about this text, the more deeply our hearts grasp the fact that we are undeserving to be at the table with Jesus, the more that is going to shape who is around our table in our homes. And the truth is, I don't know exactly what that's going to mean for each of us, but I am convinced that for us as a new church, our tables are a key place for the future of this church. Our actual tables where we have meals are a key place for the future of this church. One, it's it's how we're going to grow, grow closer to one another as a church family. And I think it's also the key to how we're going to reach surrounding neighborhoods. Our tables, sharing meals together. I heard John Mark Comer say in a podcast that much of Jesus' ministry was having meals with people who are far from God. He would meet people who are far from God and then you read in the next paragraph like that night he was in their home having dinner with them. That's just kind of how he rolled. He would meet people far from God and then have a meal with them. Who's around your table? It's worth reflecting on. I know as as I've thought about this, I've realized how much COVID kind of knocked us off course from hosting and and having people in our home like we used to. It kind of like put a big pause on it. And so we haven't like found a good pattern since then. And maybe you've experienced something similar. Maybe just you're in different phases of life with a busy work schedule or school schedule or sports or your kids' ages or bedtimes or whatever. But something has shifted this for you. I just want to just finish by giving a few practical things to think about in welcoming people to our tables. Here's the first thing I'd say. Um, Build it into your schedule and be realistic about that. Build it into your schedule and be realistic. Um, Take into account like your phase of life, um, your personality type. Uh, Like I know some of you like would have someone else at your dinner table 
or not just dinner, but like three meals a day, every meal, all the time, because you just love it. You're so extroverted. It's so energizing to you and your family. That's some of you. Others of you, you're like cringing thinking about that. So be realistic with your personality type, your phase of life, but build uh, this welcome to your table into your schedule and be realistic. Maybe it's one night a month that you're going to open up your calendar to, or maybe twice a month or whatever works for you. Secondly, I want you to think about this in two categories. Think about folks within our church family and then those outside of our church family. So within our church family, um, maybe start with a couple from your neighborhood group or from a Bible study or small group or story group that you're in. Uh, maybe if you're like coming up empty, just open the church center app and like scroll through the directory and then just like pick somebody and then text them and invite them over for a meal. Um, but beautiful things happen when we are around the table together as a church family. All right, and then outside of our church family, who do you know that is far from God? Who do you know that's far from God? Maybe a neighbor on your street or someone in your apartment building? Maybe a coworker that you've kind of got some rapport with now and you know that like this is just not on their radar? Um, maybe someone from a workout class at the gym? Think about your networks of relationships and where you already have some friendship and some capital. Just start there. Invite those people to your table. And like no pressure to like corner them and like get them to sign their life away following Jesus and all that. Just have a meal with them. Laugh with them. Love them. Eat food. Drink, drink. And just see how God uses that time together. So that's it. Pretty simple, right? Build it into your schedule. Be realistic about who you are and where you are in this phase of life. And think about those within our church family and those outside of our church family. But may we be a church of tax collectors and sinners and recovering religious people who have seen our own need of a Savior, have taken a seat at the table with Jesus, and have then begun to welcome those in our surrounding neighborhoods around our own tables. Let's pray that God would do this among us. Father, thank you that because of your love for your people, uh, you sent Jesus to come after tax collectors and sinners and those who are in need of you, to come after us, to rescue us, to live a perfect life, to live in ways that we could never imagine living, never sinning against you in thought or word or deed, just being perfect, the perfect son that we could never be. Jesus did that for us. And then he went to the cross uh, to pay the penalty for our sin, for all the things that we have done in disobedience to you that was put on your son Jesus. And he went to the tomb and he died on our behalf and three days later rose again to conquer this once and for all, to draw us back into life with you and following him. And he invites us to his table. And so Father, as we prepare to come to this table now, would you remind us of this good news? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.